0: Alright, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 16 through 33, finishing up this chapter this morning, and uh, before we begin, uh, Daniel, would you lead us in an opening prayer,
1: please?
2: Amen.
0: So, if you remember, we're in a second uh, a section here that began at the beginning of chapter 10, and it's going to go through really until verse 10 of chapter 13, where Paul is uh, defending him, uh, defending himself against these false teachers. And I meant to bring this up last time, but really, this whole section. Specifically, chapter 11 is a great section to learn how to deal with criticism, both in the giving of it and in the receiving of it. And what I mean by that is uh, when we lovingly need to give constructive, and that's a key phrase, constructive criticism to others, how do we go about it? We look at the example here, uh, Paul, how he does that. Right? He doesn't smash them over the head with it. He doesn't belittle them, he doesn't make them feel worthless and stupid, but he does point out um, what they need to know and what they need to change. But also we learn how to receive it. Paul is receiving criticism, some of it unfair criticism, but how do we receive criticism from from others? And in this whole section, Paul handles himself with with poise and grace, uh, but he's not a pushover. He he stands his ground, but not on, on his own two feet, not on his own authority or his own merits. Um, he's gonna talk about that in this section. He doesn't point out all the things that he's done and why he's worthy of the authority he's been given. But what he does is he stands on the authority and the area of influence that's been given to him by Christ. And he boasts, but he boasts in the things that that highlight his own weakness. And he boasts in the things that, that exemplify the strength of, of God and Christ. And I, I know some of, the, some of the things that I've read about 10, especially when we, when we finished chapter 9 and got into verse 10, there are some who would read the remainder of the letter and, and almost feel like it's a totally different letter. The tone of Paul changes pretty dramatic, dr- drastically. And there are some who would even say, maybe chapters 10 through 13 are the harsh letter that Paul is referring to, and it's just been tacked on to the end. There's a variety of reasons why I don't think that works. But they are just noting the the striking contrast, uh, the tone shift of Paul. But one of the reasons why I don't believe that this is a different letter tacked on is Paul does this numerous times in his other letters. Where as he's wrapping up a letter, as he's wrapping up communication with with these Christians, he will usually close with with greetings, with short exhortations, and with warnings. Sometimes, even in uh, letters like Galatians, he will defend himself like he's doing here. Uh, Galatians chapter... um, and this is actually at the beginning of Galatians, but Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Um, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is something that Paul had to regularly remind them of. Look, this isn't me. This isn't my teaching. I got this from, from Christ. But then he would include warnings, and we've talked about some of those. Galatians 1 is probably the most well-known, where he speaks of those that might come and, and present a different gospel and, uh, and the curse that, that God would put on those that would do that. He even warns at the end of Romans chapter uh, 16 to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. So... Uh, this is typical for Paul. And we know his motivation. What was Paul's motivation for doing all of this, both in the first and the second letter of Corinthians? What was his aim? What was driving him?
3: To glorify God, in chapter 5. We see also, equipment as it corresponds to the Christians there, it's further building up.
0: Yes. Yeah, his aim was to glorify God. And he knew... That if this, if this church would demonstrate the love of Christ, if they would demonstrate love towards each other and love towards Paul, that God would be glorified. If they would listen to this instruction and respond in a humble way, respond in the way that God desired, that God would be glorified. They would be built up, and, and great good could be done. So he was, in everything that he was doing in these letters and in his visits, he was demonstrating his deep love for them. Were there any thoughts, we're going to be bouncing a little bit back uh, to the first half of chapter 11, but primarily focusing on 16 through 33, but were there any thoughts or questions about verses 1 through 15 that we didn't quite get to? Well, we read the entirety of the letter, I'm sorry, the entirety of the chapter last time, but if we could just refresh ourselves with verses 16 through 33, do I have a volunteer to read that section for us?
3: Nope, I'll
0: rest over here. Thank you.
1: So, again, I say, let no one think me foolish. that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and not in a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city. DANGERS OF THE WILDERNESS, DANGERS ON THE SEA, DANGERS AMONG FALSE BRETHREN. I HAVE BEEN IN LABOR AND HARDSHIP THROUGH MANY SLEEPLESS NIGHTS, IN HUNGER AND THIRST, OFTEN WITHOUT FOOD, IN COLD AND EXPOSURE. APART FROM SUCH EXTERNAL THINGS, THERE IS THE DAILY pressure ON ME OF CONCERN FOR ALL THE CHURCHES. WHO IS WEAK WITHOUT MY BEING WEAK? WHO IS LED INTO SIN WITHOUT MY INTENSE CONCERN? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Artis, the king, the king was guarding the city of the of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands.
0: Thank you, Christ. So we know uh, back in verse 2 that, that Paul said he was feeling a divine jealousy for these, these individuals. And I want us to remember what, uh, what is leading us here into verses 16 through 33. Paul was feeling this divine jealousy towards them. We talked about the marriage analogy that, that he used there. He said, you, you are, are intended to, to be presented as a pure virgin to their bridegroom, to Christ. And so he was acting as a father, as the father of the bride, preparing her and getting ready, getting her ready to, to present her. And he's feeling this divine jealousy. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about that word. I know normally when we hear jealousy, we go, ooh, that's bad. We don't want that. But God actually describes himself as a jealous God. Some some definitions would say that jealousy is this envy that we have, this desire that we have to be like or to to have what others have. But jealousy can also be defined as as fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions. Some translations actually call this zeal, and maybe that's a little easier for us to, to understand. It's a passionate commitment to a person or a cause. Paul is saying I have a, I am fiercely protective or vigilant of not my possessions but I'm fiercely protective of you because you belong to Christ. I don't want you to be given away to somebody else. You're his. I'm zealous, he says. I'm passionate. I'm committed to you and to Christ's cause. And so he's concerned that they will allow themselves to become betrothed to another. So looking at this chapter in its entirety, we talked about a few of these last time, but he mentions a couple more in this latter section. What were some of the dangers listed in this chapter? What was he he warning them of? And what help does Scripture give us in identifying and not falling prey to these dangers? What are some of the things that he warns them about in this chapter as a whole?
4: Josh?
5: So in verse uh, 14 and 15, it talks about Satan disguising himself as an angel of light, and therefore uh, his servants also disguise themselves in the same way, but... Aside from their actions being a tell, like I described last time, um, the, the end of verse 15 according to their works, um, their end will be according to their works. So if their works are according to God, then you'll be able to tell, because you know what that looks like, because we're commanded to do the same thing and have the same outcome. But if the end is something else, then
0: Yeah, yeah. so he's, he's warning them to not simply judge these teachers or these servants based on what they're saying about themselves. But he's saying, I, I, I'm, I'm cautioning you, look at what they're producing. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You'll know them by their fruits. And so he's saying, don't, don't just believe what they say, but look at what they're producing. Yeah, God. Well,
4: even in verse 4, he talks about uh, someone coming in with a... Another Jesus, uh, a different spirit, a a different gospel than the one they accepted, and then he ends that verse by saying, "You put up with it readily enough." Mm-hmm. So this is a real danger for them of being led away from that which was originally given to them, and that which they had originally accepted. And so yeah. that's a concern.
0: Yes. Yes. In fact, he brings it up again in verses 16 through 20, specifically 20. He says, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. He said, you've been allowing people to take advantage of you. They come in and they are preaching something that maybe on the surface sounds like Jesus. It sounds like the gospel. It seems like the spirit. But in reality, they're making slaves of you, and you're letting them do it. So he's warning them of that. Um, in fact, Russ, your translation, verses 19 and 20, what was the word that it kept using? Mine says bears with. Tolerate. You tolerate. And that is a, one of those kind of buzzwords in our culture right now, tolerance. We need to be tolerant towards each other. And there is a sense where absolutely, yes, that is true. We need to be tolerant. We need to be patient. We need to be long-suffering. But he says, you've become so tolerant that you're allowing some to come in among you, claiming to be servants of Jesus, and they're enslaving you to a different master. They're abusing you. They're taking advantage of you I don't think, uh, and, and some commentators don't believe that they're literally striking them in the face, but it's kind of a, a coin of phrase, they're harming you and, and right to your face and, and you're letting them do it. Tolerance has become the ultimate righteousness in our culture so that we'll tolerate anything and everything, or at least what culture wants us to tolerate. Um... We need to tolerate what god tolerates and we need to be intolerant towards the things that god is intolerant of yes sorry tim yeah i
2: think um, last week you might or a previous class you might have talked about the sarcasm in this and it's just i mean it's so interesting to me his logic in this because he talks about him being foolish and that could be a synonym for a sinner right so Maybe they're accusing him of being a sinner. And so he says, you want to call me a sinner? These are how, this is how I'm sinning. I am being jealous. I am, I am robbing you. <laughs> in verse 8. And then he talks about, I am boasting. And, and, uh, so he's talking about all these sins in a positive light. The sarcasm in that. Hmm. And it's also, um, And there might be more, I might be missing some, but uh, it's also kind of pointing out where they're failing. They, the the people that they're listening to are jealous of Paul. The people that they're listening to are robbing them. The people that they're listening to are boasting themselves. And so it's uh, it's sort of awesome logic that he's using that's kind of confusing.
0: (laughs) <laughs> this, yes, I will grant you that for sure. Um, it is, and sarcasm is. Um, but I also, uh, I, I hope we don't come away with a bad taste in our mouth. Uh, sarcasm in excess is usually harmful. Um, we do see him here using it. We, we might say tongue-in-cheek, right? The audience knows that he's not being serious when he says, you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. Like, the audience knows what he's doing with them. And we know Paul. He's not doing it to harm them. But he's using a tactic of, okay, you want to talk foolishly? I'll use your line of reasoning to prove to you how God feels about my ministry and how God feels about these people. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But... Um, thank you for bringing that up. We've talked about it a little bit, but seeing how Paul responds in verses 20 through 30 with what he decides to put confidence in, what is something else that he's warning them of? Maybe that wasn't asked. If Paul is, re- this is his defense, I'm going to boast in these awful things that have happened to me, the things that I've had to suffer for Christ. Uh, Bob, over here. If that's his response, then what is one of the things that Paul's warning these Christians that they ought not to be doing? Well, in, in a roundabout way, he's asking, them,
4: okay, what are these people boasting about? Yeah. Are they looking up themselves? Are they pride in what they have accomplished? What Paul deals with here are not things that he accomplished, but things that happened to him for the cause of Christ. Yes. So in all this, he's elevating Christ and not himself. And I love verse 30 where he says, If I boast, I will boast of the things that show
5: my completeness.
0: Yes. He says... You know, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. It sounds like, at least it did when I read it the first time, he's just saying the same thing three different times. But he's actually being very specific. It's not, that, it's not just that he speaks the Hebrew language, which not every Jew at that time could. It's not just that his family, that, that he was born in it and not a proselyte. <coughs> It's that he can trace his family back to Abraham. Like That's what the Pharisees prided themselves in. That's what many of these Jewish teachers prided themselves in. We are descendants of, uh, you know, they told this to Jesus, right? We're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anybody. Like, read Exodus? But he says all those things that they can boast about, yes, I can do all those things. But we know how Paul felt about those things. Those are not things to then brag about or boast about. Alan?
4: In verse 28, he talks about something that's of greater concern to him, and that's the care of all the churches. Imagine what he must feel on a daily basis, as he said, the care for the churches. And here he's being talked about in this way and treated this way, Yeah, he cares. And I think for us, we need to be about that mindset too. Uh, To care for our congregation, to care for other congregations, to care for the brotherhood. What's going on out there? How many tears have we shed over what's going on in the brotherhood or or in our own congregation? Yeah. And it ought to be something that's on our heart daily to care for the brethren.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <coughs> you know, the Bible does teach us that, that churches are autonomous. They, make, they, make, they have authority over their own locality. But I hope that doesn't create in us a, a silo mentality where I'm not even going to really think
5: about other congregations.
0: Uh, no, we're, we're all part of God's family worldwide. What's happening in other countries? Christians who, who are struggling. I, I know growing up, and this is my fault, but growing up, preachers would come and uh, they'd have slideshows or something about their evangelistic efforts overseas. Uh, it was hard for me to follow. Uh, you know, I'm seeing pictures of places I've never been and photos of people I've never met and I, I'm not connecting with them like I know I, I should. Uh, I'd like to think I've gotten a little bit more mature about that, but those are our brothers and sisters that we're hearing about. And reading about those reports that come out. What are some successes that they've been having? What are some struggles that they've been having? When was the last time we stopped and prayed? About our brothers and sisters in other countries. Who use different languages. And and are struggling with with different things. And think about Paul. My kids aren't this old. Right? Nine and seven and five. But I know I've spoken with my parents. Uh, I was one of the last to go off to college. And my parents were, for at least a time, empty nesters. And the concern they had for all of us as we were out plotting our own path and and starting our own families and making decisions for ourselves for the first time, the concern and care that they had for us, I hope that we gave them what they needed. And watching us make mistakes and stumble and offering us advice when we'd ask for it and trying to encourage us and exhort us the love that they had for their, their children, that's what Paul had for these people. These were his children. Yeah, yeah.
5: It was definitely a level of vulnerability that Paul is shown here as he shows how much he cares for them. Like, yeah. even be willing to go There are things that I don't want to do because it's uncomfortable, but I'm not in pain. Mm-hmm. So, what do I really
0: have to be afraid of? Right. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, Micah, and forgive me if we, we already have. Remember when Paul came to Corinth? When Paul came to Corinth in Acts 18, he did what he typically did. He came and he reasoned in the synagogues. Um, Silas and Timothy were there with him. They didn't particularly receive it well. And Paul kind of shook his garments out and said, Okay, well, from now on I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He did get a good response from Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. But in verse 9 of Acts 18, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. That was not typical for Paul. And that is that, that encouragement from the Lord saying, don't, don't be discouraged. I've got many people here. Get after it. Keep working. Stick to it. And so you see that in the letters. He He's been commissioned by God to, to stick with these people, to, to ensure that they, can, that they can grow and be better. And so these, these warnings, these encouragements from him are from a person who invested time and energy and tears into them. I think one of the other things that, uh, that he's uh, warning them of, concerned about, uh, maybe another way of saying what we've already said, is that they will be tricked into abandoning their first love. And we see that in verses 2 and 3 and through the rest of this chapter. Their first love is this bridegroom that they're being prepared for. But there are some among them that are trying to draw them away from their first love. This, I hope, makes us think about the same encouragement that Jesus himself gave to the Ephesian church in Revelation uh, two verses one through seven. Let, let's go ahead and turn there. Let's let's read that section. Because as with many of these churches, when Jesus is speaking to them, he's got typically some things he wants to commend them for, things that they're doing well. But he also warns them of things, uh, encourages them to repent. So he's talking to these these born again believers in uh, chapter two of Revelation. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Sound familiar? <laughs> it wasn't just happening in Corinth. People were coming in, even to Ephesus, claiming to be apostles, and this, this Ephesian church put them to the test. They stacked up what these apostles were teaching with the gospel that they were presented by Paul, the gospel of Jesus, and they found them to be false. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Praise God. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nic- Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paul actually uses a tactic that I've heard uh, advocated in business. If you're going to offer criticism to someone, sandwich it between commendation. And so he does that. He doesn't just say, you're doing great, keep at it. I'll cover the rest. He says, look, there, there, there is a growing spirit among you where the love that you had, the excitement that you had at first, you've abandoned. And he says, I can tell that because you're not doing the things you did at first. He says, so repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We we need to understand that. Just because we've accepted Christ, just because we've, we've responded to the gospel, just because we've let the seed take root, Jesus told us of the soil that received it, but the stony ground, it wasn't able to, to dig down deep the roots. And so when trials came, when tribulation came, it wasn't able to survive and thrive. And so he's, he's, he's warning these Christians. Paul is in Corinthians in the same way that Jesus did to the Ephesians. He commends them for their toil and patient endurance. He commends these people for what they're doing, what they're standing for. But he's warning them. There are things that you're allowing to happen among you, people that you're allowing to influence you, that are keeping you from doing the things with the zeal and fervor that you did at first. So what are some passages that we can think of, either here in Corinthians or elsewhere. We've identified just a few things that, that these Christians need to be concerned about, that we need to be concerned about. How do we fight them? How do we combat them? How do we recognize them? What are some passages that you might think of? Alan? Oh, I'm sorry. And then uh, Gary?
4: I was thinking of Jeremiah 2, two, And he talks about they had believed in him and treated him and loved him as a young Rock. guy. Him as a young bride in the wilderness, and yet there he says that they have begun to lose that love. You know, youth can sometimes love in a way that that um, is is precious like this. And and he's saying you have forgotten your first love, whether that's the brethren or the Lord. They have forgotten their first love, and we need to continue to remember. Our first love, our love of God, and our love of the brethren.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's reminding ourselves of who he is and what he's done for us. If we start realizing, I'm just not having those, those, those feelings of love, and we know that love is more than a feeling. But if I'm recognizing, I'm not having even those emotional feelings of love towards Christ, I need to take more time to remember what Christ has done for me. I need to remember that that he died for me that he gave up heaven for me that he allowed sin to be hung on him as he hung on the cross for me and greater love had no one than that oh, gary
6: i found that uh, through years of studying with people you can study with somebody for a long time and they just seem very fervent, very zealous, very encouraging they want to know the word but I'm always leery every time I go to a study knowing that there's going to be something that they're going to find in the gospel that just hits them hard that they can't accept. You know, that their parents and they love their grandparents or grandparents are in an unsafe state so they can't serve this God or, uh, you know, a daughter that's been molested by an uncle, you know, they just, there's no way that they can find it in their heart to forgive. So I say all that to say that there's always people that are going to come around and itch their... You know, tickle their ears and say, come worship with us. You don't have to forgive that. You know, he's a rascal. He deserves what he gets. And you can hate him until the day you die it's all good. There's always going to be people that are going to come along, gather, you know, looking for a following. And they'll tell the people whatever they want to hear. So it reminds me of what Paul told the Thessalonians, that with all unrighteous deception, none of those will perish because they did not receive the love of the truth they might receive. so we have to, as Christians, we have to diligently seek the truth. And then when we find it, we have to diligently keep studying to make to make sure that we are on the right path, that we are not, because we all have things that affect us. That it would be easy for us to say, well, I'm, I'm good with all of the truth, but this part here really bothers me. It'd be nice if it wasn't there. You, know, you can't just go searching for somebody that's going to appease you and make you feel good. Worship, worship, if
4: it's not right, uh, sure.
0: the The temptation to receive it, the temptation to drift from it, has been there from the very beginning. It's why throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, instructions and encouragement of stand firm, hold fast, stay true, is in there because Satan doesn't want us to do that. Satan wants us to, to drift, to turn to stop Satan wants us to shrink in his previous letter 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses uh, 13 and 14 he says be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong let all that you do be done in love Right, and that's this thesis of these two letters was there another hand uh, Bob up here
3: The book, up in, in chapter 13 uh, to your question you know, what, what scriptures will speak to this and, and it's pretty evident that he's, uh, he's challenging and even again here at the very end, end of the, the uh, letter it says test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves or do you not recognize that, that about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail a test. So that is always a, a, a question that we need to ask ourselves. Uh, it doesn't diminish what God has done for us in any way. Uh, a matter of fact, uh, it emboldens and strengthens it. It's that we are carnal, and while we wear this flesh, that Satan's going to work on us until the day we lay our head down. And uh, this is something that we always do. But we can live our lives with absolute absolute assurance of our salvation Uh, because our faith uh, holds us there uh, but we always need to be on guard because we have an adversary.
0: that's right and we have to keep examining ourselves I mean how many of us husbands like look I told my wife I loved her on our wedding day that should be good right she knows it right I said it that one time That should be good. No, (laughs) it doesn't work that way in marriage. It doesn't work that way with Jesus. I was baptized, right? I showed him my faith and my belief in him. I repented of my sins. That should be good, right? No, no. Every day I'm making the decision to strive, to push, counting on his grace and his mercy to help me. But I, 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 I do appreciate the end of his letter. He says, you know, test yourselves. Stack yourselves up to the standard that God has set. And strive and, and push. And these are, these are terms that, that Paul uses throughout his, his writings. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This was something that was emphasized quite a bit in in our week at camp. Standing firm, doing it with one mind. We're we're, we're striving side by side. We're not in this alone. Thank God. Thank God. We've got other people who can encourage us and exhort us and help us. Strength comes in numbers. And, And God gave us a family for a reason. Yeah, Josh.
5: So, my mind goes back to the garden, of course, as you know, Eve has mentioned. And I'm struck then in Genesis 3, verse 11, where God says, Who told you that you were naked? And his question there is leading back to their source of knowledge. Right? I wish that Eve had taken that approach with Satan. He said, You can't eat of any tree. Is that really what God said? Well, who told you that? Because that's, that's a tactic that we can use today to test where the information we're getting is coming from If it's really from God, or from some yes. other source.
0: Yes. Be careful who our teachers are. Eve allowed herself to be taught by someone other than God. And it was disastrous. And it sounded good. It sounded really close to what God himself had said, but it wasn't truth. We need to be careful who our teachers are. I, I, I struggle with this. Preparing for a class. Where do I go to first to prepare my thoughts? There are numerous resources out there. I make some of those resources for a living. But do I go to other men's resources first in preparing my study? Or do I go to this first? And if I encounter a word in here or a theme or a concept in here, where do I go to define that word or that theme or that concept? Do I go to the commentaries to tell me? Because anyone who's done that, we can all know, they can't agree with most of them. They can't. If the Bible uses a word, God's really wise he defines it for us in the book we want to know what faith means the bible tells us we want to know what baptism is for the the bible tells us i'm not going to go to a man and ask him now there is value there can be value in listening to podcasts and reading blogs and commentaries. certainly i do that but it shouldn't be our first course of action and it shouldn't be where we spend most of our time we need to be careful who our teachers are Yeah, Josh.
5: Yeah, and what you're hitting at there is we need to know the truth. If we don't know the truth, we can't tell a lie different from the truth. Right. We can't pick out the nuance. Like, yeah, if you just read over that verse where Satan says, Did God really say this and you're not paying attention, we could easily miss the little one word difference from what God said, just like, what, last chapter? Yep. (laughs) So. Having that attention to detail and having that, again, zeal for God's will will lead us to be able to identify things that break from
0: that. Yeah. And Paul is constantly encouraging his listeners and his readers to do the same thing with his. He says in Galatians 1, if anyone comes to you and preaches a different gospel other than what I presented, he says, even if I do. Even if an angel from heaven, or if I do, don't believe it. They're to be accursed. He says, stack it up to what we have been, what has been revealed to us. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that point up. We are, we're running out of time. Um, How does Paul answer as a fool in this section? He says, I'm going to act a little foolishly. How, How does he... And I put that in quotes. How does he play the fool in this section? And what's his purpose? And maybe as we're thinking about that, let me read a passage in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 26. Uh, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Some people read these passages and go, this is a direct contradiction. They're literally right next to each other. 26 and verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Those are totally different pieces of advice. How can they, because in some circumstances, the correct response is, I'm not going to dignify that question with an answer in some circumstances, don't answer a fool according to his folly. It, it, it will not be productive. But in some s- instances, as I believe chapter 11 is, if we answer a fool according to his folly, we can help him not be so wise in his own eyes. Yes, Phil. I don't
3: know if this it's clear in my mind, but it's... it's- I see Paul's humility in, or he's trying to describe his humility, and in playing the
4: fool, he shows how he could have been, or could be, puffed up with
3: pride in all of his, you know, cultural standings, in his sufferings, in his, if he were to lay out in full, you know, boasting pride load, his accomplishments, that would be playing the fool. Mm-hmm. And so it, yeah. He plays the fool by describing how a fool would have responded.
0: Yes. In fact, you see him in verse 22, it kind of sounds like he's gearing up to do that, right? Hebrew, yep. Israelite, yep. Abraham's family, yep. And you'd think, now he's going to start taught under Gamaliel I you know taught in these synagogues I was from this but he doesn't do that he shifts gears but he uses their own rationale to show them just how foolish their logic is So Andy Cantrell he's an evangelist in Minnesota says it's a mistaken notion for Christians to think that it's somehow unkind or fleshly to actually get into conversations with people to try and destroy their bad arguments. That's love. That's right. That's spiritual warfare, which was a term used in the previous chapter. Sometimes we think it's unkind to engage with someone when they're speaking foolishly. No, there's an unkind way of doing it, and we mustn't do that. But if we come, as Paul did here, humbly, humbly, pointing out to them the illogical conclusion that they have come to. That's love. That's that's the right thing to do. So Paul is trying to highlight the foolishness of these false teachers in order to save these Christians that are being tempted to listen to them and follow after them. Josh? Yeah,
5: I think we can gather that concept from Says that he'll boast according to the flesh since many of them do. So he's going to just do the same thing that they are doing. But the verse prior says that he's going to do it, he's going to speak foolishly, but that's not the way the Lord speaks. So he's contrasting the way that they are speaking versus the way that the Lord is speaking. He's sticking with the way they talk to show how is. Yeah. but ultimately he's making the point that None of this matters. None, none of this really it carries any weight because it doesn't look like Christ.
0: Right. It doesn't look like Christ. The term that Jesus used for himself more than any other term, what was that? You remember? The son of man. And he was, that was a term prophesied, right? But he was also the son of God. He had a citizenship literally in heaven. He doesn't talk about that a lot. He would be tempted to. Do you know where I come from? Do you know who my father is? He brought it up occasionally, but more often than not, he related to them on their human level and said, I I am like one of you and showed his meekness. Did I hear a second bell? No, we're still going. All right. How did Paul feel about his own heritage and upbringing? Yes, he brings up that he's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite, he's an offspring of Abraham. But in Philippians chapter 3, he lists all those things. Let's go ahead and read that. If we finish our time together reading Philippians 3, that would be profitable. Philippians 3, starting in verse... For, uh, in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says the good things that I've accomplished, he even lists some of the bad things that he had done as a persecutor of the church. He said, I put all of those behind me. Those are garbage. Because when I compare them to the glory of Christ here, when I compare them to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, they're they're garbage. I'm gonna put those things behind me. Micah.
3: So, so looking at what he endured uh, for Christ and for the church, um, you can really see that he just he gave it all up. Yeah. And really that's what Jesus did. I think he sort of maybe. Jesus did the exact same thing of everything that he had everything that he deserves, yeah. and yet he gave that all up. And we've, that's been a theme that we've seen throughout this book, is that um, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is to be as he is.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll follow in his example. Thank you all. We will be in chapter 12 um, on Wednesday, Lord willing.